You're listening to the Healthcare Goes Digital podcast. Get ready to be inspired as we explore provocative topics surrounding innovative technologies and ideas with top industry professionals, digital entrepreneurs, and provocateurs. At Impetus Digital, we believe that everything starts with a conversation. We aspire to act as the bridge to not only ignite these courageous conversations, but to also sustain them over time. We do this through our Insight platform, which features our award-winning Insight events and Insight Touchpoint solutions, and through these fireside chats. In the end, our hope is to collectively and positively disrupt healthcare. Let's get started with your host, Natalie Eden. CEO and co-founder of Impetus Digital, an all-in-one, fully-serviced virtual collaboration and communication solution for online meetings, events, conferences, and advisory boards for life science companies. Um, Hi, everybody. My name is Natalie Yeadon, and I'm the CEO and co-founder with Impetus Digital. At Impetus Digital, we have built some of the best in class asynchronous and synchronous virtual collaboration and communication tools. We work with life science companies across the globe and we've been doing this for the last 13 years, helping companies to do everything from creating virtual advisory boards, medical education virtual programs, journal clubs, publication groups, investigator meetings, Um, We've even launched recently a large insight platform for corporate events, sales training, hackathons, and all kinds of things. But more importantly, at Impetus, we really believe that everything starts with a conversation. And from these big, hairy, audacious conversations, we can all work together with some of the leading edge thinkers, digital entrepreneurs, um, thought, uh, thought leaders in the lay sciences space, to work to collectively and positively disrupt healthcare. But it doesn't only stop there. It doesn't just start with the conversation. We need to build on those conversations. We need to sustain them over time. And this is exactly what we do at Impetus with our asynchronous and synchronous platform, having ongoing conversations, pulling people in to build consensus, gather insights, move agendas forward so that we could do some really provocative things in the healthcare space. Healthcare has never been more disruptible than it is today. So we're super excited to have one of these leading edge thinkers. This is actually Gail Ouellette. Um, She's actually a geneticist and a genetic counselor. She has a PhD in genetics from the University of Montréal and a master's degree in genetic counseling from McGill University. In 2010, Gail co-founded the Quebec Coalition of Orphan Diseases, or the RQMO. Um, This is actually with rare diseases associations and patients without an association. She now serves as their president and scientific director, as well as of its iRare Center, a rare disease information and support center. Gail uses her skills, knowledge, and contacts in the field of genetics to help all kinds of associations and individuals with rare diseases, to help inform and support families affected by rare diseases, as well as raise awareness in the medical community and the public, disseminate and exchange all kinds of important information, as well as bring together patients and researchers so that we can all work together to advance knowledge of rare diseases. Welcome, Gail. So happy to have you on our show. 
Thank you so much for inviting me. Absolutely. It's really interesting. Um, probably when you started in genetic counseling um, and, you know, and doing the research that you were, there probably wasn't a very popular thing. Probably people didn't know anything about it. But now it's probably the thing to do. Did you always know that you wanted to be a genetic counselor? How did you end up being where you are today? Not at all, because as you said, uh, you know, it took me a long time to find out that genetic counseling existed. <laughs> and I think that's uh, made, it's better well known now, but it was the case years ago. And especially, uh, it's funny, in Montreal, because the uh, training there exists since the 1980s. So I was working in research in genomics in 1990, from 1994 to um, uh, 1999. And it's at that time that I found out about genetic counseling. And uh, had been in genetics for a long time, and uh, I didn't know about that profession. And I started getting tired of uh, working in a laboratory. And, and at that time, I was doing genetic epidemiology for gene discovery. So I was in, uh, in front of a computer all the time and working with numbers and statistics and bioinformatics and and was uh, a long way from uh, the... Um, the, the studies that we were doing on Alzheimer's disease, schizophrenia, and not seeing patients, not. So at one point I decided, yeah, I want to get into clinical. And I did look into going into medicine, but I had a son. I, you know, I was uh, uh, already in my 30s. And so I found out about genetic counseling. And the funny thing is the people I met, um, the program director at the time, uh, PhDs I spoke with, they were saying, come on, Gail, you have a PhD. Why would you go into genetic counseling, do a master's degree? And, you know, for them, it was like going backwards. But I, I decided to do it. I didn't even know if I could because I was a kind of science nerd, <laughs> you know, in a lab, libraries. <laughs> reading in, in front of my computer. But finally, I think I passed the training and uh, I just loved it, loved it. What a great story. I love that, Gail. And I especially love the fact that you had some entrepreneurial spirit there. So usually there's naysayers and people trying to dissuade you from following something that doesn't make sense, that goes against the core or against the mainstream. So you did start the Quebec Coalition of Orphan Diseases. So maybe you can explain, because in some ways you were a little ahead of your time before you know orphan diseases was a thing. Um, so tell us what brought that to your imagination and what were some of those major frontiers that you had to overcome in order to establish this organization? Well, it's because of uh, my going into genetic counseling that I, the idea came to regroup patient organizations and orphan patients. And it happened because uh, in genetic counseling, we, we meet with individuals, pregnant women, families, even sometimes with children and, and teens. And I, when I was counseling, I could, see, especially with a, a family with a new diagnosis, I could, I could see how so few resources that they had. 
And uh, so that was beginning of, let's say, 2000. And at that time, the internet wasn't as developed, you know, social media, Web 2.0 or Web 3.0, whatever. And uh, so they didn't find resources easily for themselves. And it's part of our um, uh, task of doing that and helping them out. And even myself, for some rare diseases, you couldn't find much. And especially, well, in Quebec, find things in French because some people can't read or speak English. And one, um, there's one family that I think that's really got me. You know, the, the little girl just had a diagnosis of some form of uh, bone dysplasia. And they asked me, what's the frequency of this disease? And I had looked it up and I said, well, it's about one in a million. You know, they just said, well, and like often they say, we should have bought a lottery ticket and won the lottery. Uh, but that means we won't find anybody else with this disease. We're like alone. <laughs> so, so that's when, it, you know, it got to me, this is, they don't have resources. Who can they speak to? Um, so, and obviously for treatment was difficult, lots of, most of the time there aren't any. So I started looking what was happening in the rest of the world. And it was really in France. Well, you know, there's also the French language where at that time uh, they were already working on a rare disease national plan. You know, their first one was established in 2004. They started working for it in, in 1999. The patient organizations got a big meeting uh, with uh, all the stakeholders in France. And so I was looking at that and I said, and then I, I saw Eurordis and patient organization in Europe starting to, and then there's Nord in the United States. And I also knew about CORD in Canada, but CORD at that time actually was different. It was helping giving information to families. So that's when I, I went around, I was already working with some patient organizations and actually I was, in my home, in my telephone, my office, my computer, I was already answering questions for uh, in genetics or about rare diseases. People would call me up. They got my name, my email. And so uh, I started going around patient organizations and say, hey, why don't we regroup in Quebec? They've done that elsewhere in the world. So it's, it should be good for us too, to get something for rare diseases in Quebec. So some parents had already started some organizations, but... Uh, I thought it was a good idea to recruit them. It's beautiful. And I'm assuming that, you know, this is a, a large organization for general education, community, feeling that there's some tribalism, people feel like they need to belong somewhere and that there's, there's somebody else that they're not alone in the world. I'm actually just curious, not that COVID-19 per se is a genetically discernible, although there's some people that says, you know, through some recent research with 23andMe that there is um, a predetermination if you're somebody who's more susceptible to getting COVID-19 or not. But I'm just curious, the pandemic has turned the world upside down. I'm wondering if the pandemic has had any impact on the rare disorders community or anything that your coalition has been focusing on or helping to educate people with. Yes, you see, actually it's, it's funny because it's paradoxical. Uh, families, uh, individuals were saying, 
we're already isolated. So what does it change for us to be uh, <laughs> confined and all these uh, rules for confinement, which is true because some are so uh, incapacitated or take care of a very seriously ill child that they're not in the workplace, mothers often, or they, they're not working themselves for adults with some uh, rare diseases. So it's true in a sense. Um, and the other thing is, and we have proof of that actually, when we did a survey at the beginning of the RQMO, we had asked the question, do, uh, do you feel isolated uh, with your rare disease? And it's 70% or 72, 73% are answered, yes, I do. And that was even if they knew somebody else with the disease or knew a patient organization. So somebody with a rare disease, it's different than diabetes, cancer. You know, you say that to somebody, I have cancer and you have a lot of empathy. You, you have diabetes, heart uh, disease, they know what it is. But if you tell them I have Schwarzman Diamond syndrome or Hurler syndrome or, or uh, all these weird names <laughs> given by doctors, well, you know, people often, they don't know how to react and it, it, and it shows a lot. So they feel isolated. Now, it exacerbated things So The first thing that happened was anxiety for, am I more at risk? Well, first, some had to understand that they weren't more at risk of getting COVID. But then when they understood that is, but if I get it, am I more at risk or is my child more at risk of, of uh, having a serious disease and even dying? So that were many, many questions about that. And unfortunately, at the beginning, how could we answer that? We couldn't very much. Huh? So, so we, we went with the general answers about some chronic, having some chronic diseases. And um, so, and the other, and I'll come back to that, what we did. And the other uh, thing was services. So uh, the government services from our community clinics, where they had help at home, uh, some uh, aid uh, for uh, transportation to uh, help them with their daily tasks. And well, all that was cut off. So, uh, and you know, at the time, remember it was, uh, bring my, uh, go to, the, somebody had to go to the, the drugstore or the, um, for food and put that on your, in front of your door. So uh, we scrambled to find community organizations in, in different regions of Quebec to get help for these, for some people. So some community organizations were still doing it that way, or some, and some, there were some that you had to pay for though. So we really tried to help at that level. And um, so, and we were calling up people to know what they needed and, and did some surveys. So that was the main, the main, uh, the main things. And then after it was uh, vaccination. So because of their disorders, should I be vaccinated? Some, some do have, know that they have serious reactions to some medication, drugs, and even vaccines. So they were worried about that. So I'm gonna tell you what we did and it proves the lack of a plan, policy, strategy, whatever you wanna call it in Canada for rare diseases. So we turned to Europe. 
we turn to France especially. In France, they have 23 filières, they call. Uh, I, don't, I didn't know how to translate in English, but it's like branches or chapters of a big, huge network for rare diseases across their country. It's divided in these three, 23 chapters according to categories of diseases, of rare diseases. And each one of these branches, sectors, they unite, they, they regroup centers of reference, centers of excellence for these categories of diseases. So they're very well organized. And we went to see what they were doing. And right away, they got their experts to write up to, you know, leaflets, to do webinars, uh, to address the COVID and the impact the COVID could have on, on categ these categories of rare diseases. So we, we were collecting this information, putting the links on our web, our, we put it in the document actually, in our, uh, in our, on our Facebook page and our web page. And it was incredible. It was the most likes and, um, and interactions with that page that we had ever seen. So people were lacking information. And that's wow. where we got it from. We got it from another country. Yes. Because our experts here, they're not organized. They were worried about COVID. They were certainly, uh, COVID, they were certainly answering the needs of their patients, but we, they couldn't take time to sit down and say, okay, for this disease, what do yeah. you tell our patients? And I even translated webinars for some patients for certain diseases. And our rare, our rare center was on that information. So that's, you know, that's the lack of any structure organization that we don't have in Canada. It's a shame. So what is the mandate? And I'm assuming that you are probably doing some collaborative work with CORD. Um, and I, if you were to pick a few key, you know, major agenda items that you would want to see happening in the next you know, one to two years, how can we move the needle forward? You know, we certainly are not in a place to have 23 chapters or divisions and obviously that level of complexity and, and quite frankly, brilliance in another country. But what small steps can we start taking to, to really, um, you know, assist patients or start to develop a more comprehensive plan? Well, I'll tell you where we're at in Quebec and that would apply for the whole of Canada. Um, first of all, yes, with CORD, we've been collaborating uh, since our founding and even myself before, you know, I also got the idea of founding something in Quebec by uh, participating in, in CORD meetings and meeting with uh, people from, because they were holding international meetings. And um, so the focus was on uh, getting some organization. We weren't even talking about a plan or strategy at the time, but then it came and in 2015, we had our proposal of a strategy for Quebec with 40 some solutions and uh, proposed and CORD also had, and we participated in that, uh, lots of uh, discussions with stakeholders and had a, a, a proposal too for Canada. And they're all the same as proposals and plans because the patients and they all have the same needs, the caregivers, the families, rare diseases, they all have the same needs across, across the world. So, um, and CORD is also very uh, active in access to treatments. 
So um, what I would say is, first of all, we do have to have a plan or a strategy to get this organized. And we were calling for it in Quebec and we had some success because we had a working group that wrote a report with recommendations. And now we have an advisory committee, which is not meeting because of COVID. But they were supposed to meet for three years. Now we said, okay, that's too much. And we can't wait anymore. Let's not wait for this big strategy and plan and how to organize. And let's, let's, uh, let's do the priorities that the patients ask for people with rare diseases and their caregivers and their families, what they asked for, the first thing which in our survey was more than 50% of respondents. And then in all our consultations, it came up all the time. It comes up in our iRare center that you mentioned because people can call us and, and write to us for support and information. It's finding doctors, physicians that understand what it is to have a rare disease the approach for a diagnosis to reduce delays in diagnosis, the approach for social services because they have a lot of trouble accessing social services. And so it's not to tell and learn the 7,000, 8,000 rare diseases, but it's there, you have to understand what it is to have this disease, what it is to, we want you to search for our diagnosis, not just stop there, you know, when you've done all the tests and you don't find it. And so that, so what that means is we need education in the medical community, physicians and other health professionals. We need that education. It's done in other countries. So, because for diagnosis, um, uh, doctors, as I said, can't know the 7,000 disease, but they, they need some resources and information to be able, where do I go? Where are the experts in this disease? So we're asking, education of doctors and a network, a registry or an intranet somewhere. And we're asking for it in Quebec, but it should be across Canada so that doctors can find who's an expert in this disease or category of diseases. Those are easy things to put, to establish, you know? Yeah. And so it actually makes a lot of sense, Gail. And, um, you know, there's a lot of really great meat in there. And I think those are some fantastic easy steps to move forward. So I'm actually just curious with the federal government and let's be really honest, all the provincial ones being completely stuck in this quagmire pandemic, you know, fury right now. If one was to, for example, collaborate with the pharma companies, I, I'm actually just curious because at the end of the day, you've got a really stretched, you know, min, you know, uh, specific number of healthcare providers available in Canada who probably, like you said, they're, they're focused on a few things. People get into automaticity. They get into habits of how they prescribe and how they diagnose. And anything that remotely looks a little different uh, using the tools and the diagnostics that we leverage, we automatically assume it's either, either a yes or a no. It's kind of like a black and white world. We go into that workflow automation and we go into things that are easiest. Yes. So it requires energy to ask those courageous questions or to say, what else could this be? So perhaps the one thing that they can be educated on is that question set. And then as you've mentioned, some sort of a, a place where they can use search tags and then being able to look at potentially another slew of potential diagnostics and options. Is that something the pharmaceutical, biotech, life science companies can collaborate with the cords and with your, you know, with the Quebec associations 
to, to bring this to Canadians? Well, um, to, to, you know, to be open also, I'm always open with potential conflicts of interest. You know that Cord and, our, and ourselves, we, we have some financial support from pharmas. Uh, it's usually for sponsorship for activities or some educational uh, projects. And I want to say that because the, the, I find it important to be transparent with that. And so we do collab, we collaborate and, you know, we wouldn't be existing doing everything we're doing without that support because we get some support from our Quebec government, but it, it's, it's not enough to do everything we would like to do for the rare disease patients. And actually the farmers, they, they also, they're, they're asking also for a strategy because yes, they, they want also that, for example, a Canadian registry of the patients with rare diseases for research, for, uh, for, for uh, access to treatments. They, uh, they're, they're calling on the same things, you know, we need it, but I, you know, it's limited what they can do too. They can help finance, but the government has to organize that in their health system. And, so, and that seems to be where it's, you know, the blockages, the obstacles are. Um, however, there's something positive with the pandemic. Um, something negative that we're afraid of is that, and even researchers are afraid of that, that science is being diverted to infectious disease and future pandemics and prevention, which is, we understand because it impacted our society so much. But um, there's po positive is that access to data. Now people were talking much more about open access to data. And if I take the example of Quebec, Quebec has been criticized, and I don't know how it is in the other provinces, but even maybe Health Canada too, but that we researchers and uh, clinicians could not access all that data that's, that the government has in the Ministry of Health, and uh, be it for treatments or be it for, for anything, you know, the whole... A tra trajectory in the health system that a person goes through. And so um, people have been talking about that much, a lot, and especially in genomics and genetics, and people want open access, but it's not there yet very much. So I think uh, this opened me the door. I've been invited to two meetings recently, just about that access to data. And it seems that it's getting somewhere. So that were, um, we're very happy for, and with that, maybe we'll be able to better diagnose, get people early for their treatment and early access to treatment. Yeah, that's actually a phenomenal statement and completely 100% agree. I mean, there's been so many silver linings in this fairly traumatic and tragic series of events. Um, one of them being about decentralized trials and a real emphasis on patient-centered healthcare uh, with abilities to enter you know, patient reported outcomes, relooking at real world evidence, the potential integration of registries into, you know, discovery. So lots of interesting things there. I'm going to want to switch gears a little bit because we've been talking a lot about people who have already been diagnosed with a rare disease. Sometimes there's a treatment and sometimes there is not. So these people are kind of waiting in the, in the sidelines, hoping that there's an other people in the one of a million that they will also find that will create the momentum for a company to be interested enough to create and discover something. But let's actually talk about this and rewind this right to the time of 
can we prevent somebody from being in a situation where they have a genetic issue? And this really comes down to the idea of genetic counseling. So I know that you've actually helped to spearhead something called the Genetics Simply website. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the, the establishment of this website, what its purpose is, and how this relates to the work that you do for couple, um, you know, single genetic counseling about things that they're planning to do, or even in terms of raising uh, or raising new families? Yeah, well, thank you for asking me about that. It's a small project that I'm, 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 I've started and, and want to retire, uh, retire to, to do full time in my retirement. <laughs> so uh, soon enough, if I, uh, you know, we're really working on getting, um, what do you say in English, la relève for um, our organization. So some, some people to take on and uh, keep it going. Uh, but new people and uh, so so here the idea came from is again it's everything i learned in doing genetic counseling but mostly with the rqmo the quebec coalition of orphan diseases and hearing all these people and families uh, about their genetic rare disease which is uh, we say 80 percent of all rare diseases so first of all um most of the provinces and Quebec is one. I think in Ontario, we always find Ontario better for their genetic services. In our, in our genetic counseling <laughs> environment, we find that. But there are not enough medical geneticists. And it's so um, unbelievable these days, absurd, because you see the development in genetic technologies and in discoveries and gene discovery, a gene every hour nearly, I don't know, but so, but that in the clinical services, there are hardly any specialists. So uh, we're about, I don't know, 30, 40 genetic counselors in Quebec and maybe 30, 40 medical geneticists, not more. And that's not a lot because also, Genetics is complicated. It was always all, already complicated for the average physician and 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 the person, but uh, now it's even more complicated with the genomics, personalized medicine, pharmacogenomics. But even just in the monogenic diseases now, with the testing and everything, it's complicated. So, um, so we we need these specialists. We can't leave it to somebody who doesn't have all the, the training. Uh, so, and the other thing is we're discovering now, uh, it's mostly research, it's not clinical, but we're discovering new diseases or diseases that we didn't think of. And finally, they're different, but it's related to the same gene that we already knew associated with a disease. And families now, when they call us up, it's not a disease name that they tell us, it's a gene. So we have this gene because it was found uh, most probably by genomic sequencing and they don't even have a name for the disorder. So it's really changing. And, so, and we don't have enough resources in clinics and the waiting times are just awful. I mean, it's, um, it's years. And now with COVID, we found out some waiting times for some clinics that are three years, five years. So those are four things that are not considered priority, which is priority is obviously a baby was born with a uh, condition. 
serious condition, um, a diagnosis has to be made, or pregnant women. Those are usually the priorities in, in genetics, in the clinical genetics. So if you're a couple who have a child with a disease and now you want family screening, you want to know, uh, or you somebody in your family had a child with a rare disease and you want to be screened to know if you're a carrier, you, you have to wait a long time or they tell you, well, become pregnant and call us back, which is, I find <laughs> not, you know, doing tests during pregnancy is the anxiety, the rush. It's really not the best time. And the other thing is there's a lot of information out, that, out there about things you can do in genetics, information you sh should have about your family history about conditions you may have yourself and were never diagnosed or uh, which are uh, just go, they go uh, unseen when they, they see their family doctor. Family doctors, they're, they're preoccupied by heart disease, diabetes, obesity, uh, those and cancer, the hereditary cancer. They rarely ask questions about malformations, miscarriages, uh, somebody that has a, some troubles with walking, neuromuscular, those are all kinds of things we ask in genetics for people's family history. And so it often is overlooked. So that's why I, all this, these gaps I, I find in genetics when a, as a genetic counselor, but especially as uh, in, the, in the RQMO and our rare center, well, I decided to bring this information at a level that anybody can understand and know what they can do. Now, the other thing I did, I, um, I uh, had a short uh, period last year where I worked in a private clinic. It was interesting. Um, and uh, it, that's where I saw how people are desperate. They're willing to pay $1,000 to get the counseling and the test done, especially for hereditary cancers uh, and for other disorders and for diagnosis. So I was amazed to find how people would call up and say, I don't have a diagnosis. Can I have a genetic test? And, and they, what, they would go from doctor to doctor and don't know it, but, and, and we're not, we can't diagnose genetic counselors. So uh, they have to have a doctor's prescription for a private test, a test done in, in diagnostic laboratories. So it sounds to me like, Gail, one of the things that probably needs to be added onto that agenda for rare diseases, but just in general, uh, it sounds also like for oncology and many other types of diagnoses, that we need to be putting together some, some resources, either human or otherwise, towards medical genetic testing and diagnosis and count and counseling. So um, I'm thinking about people, which requires some time to get people, but I'm curious about your thoughts again, since this is a digital channel and we're a digital company, yeah. um, your thoughts on the eventuality of creating a support like app or chatbot that uses smart learning, machine learning algorithms to be able to have people enter information and for somebody to do some of that initial counseling, mapping, whatever, utilizing you know, unstructured data from all kinds of sources, journals, et cetera, and using the smart machine 
to make up for the lack of human resources to do this. So people are not waiting four to five years for that coaching. What's, what's your sense on that? Yeah, well, I agree with you. And I think there are some initiatives out there. I've seen out there, I've seen chat boxes in, in some uh, clinics or diagnostic laboratories. Um, and, uh, I, and I know that there, there, there are some initiatives with artificial intelligence. And yes, and, but it's amazing. I mean, we, we should be doing it, but it's amazing how we're not doing the basic things. And that's what, and that's why I decided to, to do this genetics project. I mean, just taking a, a family history. So now you can do it. The only thing is, uh, and, and it's not, people don't know. There are very good websites uh, by uh, the diagnostic labs or even the Surgeon General United States. My problem is that, most of the time I'm, I'm, I have a French clientele and there's nothing in French uh, of the sorts. But so there are things out there, not even used, not even uh, known. And that's what I'd like to make known. And, and um, but yes, I think there should be uh, easier ways. If you can't get a consultation with the human, <laughs> at least a first, as you say, a first uh, step where you can uh, go through information. Uh, if you check, if if you check a box somewhere and you say I had three miscarriages and a baby, there was a neonatal death in my family, that's an alarm signal. So, so I agree with you. There should be a way of somebody thinking of having children. I, I'm helping couples now to to uh, learn so that they can think of those things, but if they can check a box somewhere on an app and, and, and geez, uh, it's an alarm signal that somebody should pick up a physician and say, okay, because this is something that's standard. Three miscarriages, you do a karyotype, you do a chromosomal analysis. We've been doing that for what, 40 years, but we don't pick them up a lot of times. So, so uh, for me, it's um, information is the key. Absolutely. So if, and it's if, really if important stuff. To, to give the information. Uh, great to get the information, but that's what you have to get out there. The information. Absolutely. So Gail, you know, besides the fact, just the ability to give people alarms or to give them some initial counseling or coaching or what have you, there's also a lot of technology that is coming up that really we talk about liquid biopsies now, since COVID, there's been a lot of discussion of, you know, patient reported outcomes, wearables, uh, ambient biometrics types of technologies, but also this idea of the COVID test, you know, which is the nasal swab. There's, you know, various other things like 24 hour glucose monitoring. What else can be created so that there's certain kinds of genomic testing that can make this part of a more day-to-day -day part of people's world potentially even at the point where from a time a child is born, they have their full genome, and then we can use what their current situation is as a, as a baseline for future health monitoring. What's your sense on the, the evolution towards that model? That's a very good question. It brings me back to 1994, when I started in the genomics company, where a company was a research group multidisciplinary became a public uh, company but there was a 
an editorial in Nature, which is a very big science journal, about this, what you just said, the, um, a, a baby, when a baby is born, you have this genetic report card. So you do the whole sequencing of the whole genome. At that time in 1994, it was <laughs> not possible to do that like we can do today. Today we could do it. And we're thinking of doing it for uh, infants uh, at birth. So, um, but there's all these ethical questions about that, you know, so uh, about knowing everything in your sequence. So I'll get back to very basic things that could be done and are not done today. <laughs> so uh, carrier testing. So we're always, when you read uh, research articles, uh, articles in the media, uh, scientific publications, meetings, you hear all the time about doing this testing uh, during pregnancy or neonatal, so when the baby is born, uh, to uh, screen these genes and find if there's something uh, wrong, with, wrong with the baby. Either, you know, it should be done now in neonatology when babies are born and they have a condition to find it rapidly. We're not doing it yet here, but that should be done. During pregnancy, that's for me, it's, it's, as I say, doing these kind of things during pregnancy uh, when it, we're just fishing for things and there's not a, a problem that came up during pregnancy or in the family history. So, but hardly anybody talk about preconception carrier screening. So, so these are always, always voluntary, these tests. And so you can screen now hundreds of genes. It's not a lot. There's the maybe 6,000 genes associated with known diseases, but now there's some companies now they're up to 500, I think, which are the most frequent, the most serious, the most uh, somewhere you can, there can be a treatment. And so this is, as you say, it's just a, a swab. It's now it's either saliva or a buccal swab. You do this at home. Now, when I worked in that private clinic, uh, you, we were counseling and get a doctor's prescription and a kit is sent uh, to the person's home and they do this buccal swab, swab and it's, uh, it's sent to the uh, diagnostic lab. So it's very easy today. And now the results, you get them two weeks, four weeks maximum and panels of hundreds of genes and it's not that costly anymore. So it's available, it's there. Now, the government is not ready to pay these for preconception carrier testing like this, unless you have a family history, unless you're a certain uh, origin or geographical region where there are frequent diseases and there are programs. But I, I find that uh, it's uh, any couple considering having uh, a child, uh, you know, they, they invest in, the baby's room in equipment, why not in, in seeing if they are carriers? Now, as I say, it's voluntary. And the way I present this, I never use the word prevention. I use the word information. So they can, see, they can learn if they're carriers, if both, uh, and there's a very significant percentage of the population when you do this, these genetic tests where you find both members of the couple are carriers, which means that it's 25%, one out of four, that they can have a child with a rare genetic disorder. These are recessive disease or a, a, a female is carrier, X-linked disease. 
and then it's 50% for a, a son to have the disease. So, so they get to know before, and then you can decide there's a lot of options. They don't have to um, have prenatal diagnosis if they don't want to, if they, they know they don't want to end the, the, terminate the pregnancy. They can meet with doctors and see what can be done after a treatment, surgery, whatever. They, and they can, uh, a couple can decide for artificial insemination to, uh, to uh, for, for, uh, uh, buy, buy a sperm donor so that the, the, find somebody who's not a carrier. There's all kinds of options. And, and it's them to, to know them and to, to decide. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, so this is so so this is you know when you're you ideally yeah we could have our report card from birth and all all the disorders, uh, but there's things we can do today and are not really done and known. Yeah, and yeah. yeah so uh, the other thing I I, I wanted to and, and yeah and, and why I'm a proponent of this is because you don't have all that anxiety and rush during pregnancy when you find out <laughs> you're your uh, family history because you're you just found that out by talking to the geneticist or the doctor or or uh, if you're you're doing your out some find something on ultrasound or or uh, and so it's better to t make these decisions about testing and options when you're you have a clear head and you're not uh, rushed yeah. about it so Gail, this is actually really helpful. So obviously, I think we've discerned that there's obviously a lot of advantages of having a genomic test you know, genetic testing, however you want to look at, you know, the full versus the partial, you know, everything from family planning to also determining baseline health. We've talked a little bit about that. Potential access to future therapies or access to clinical trials when they become available for your particular rare disease. And also to be able to indulge in precision medicine. We realize that there's a lot of oncologic products out there that are specific to types of mutations. And you need to have that knowledge to determine if you are going to respond appropriately or effectively to those therapies. So there's myriads of benefits to what we're talking about. But let's actually spend a couple of minutes talking about some of the not so good things. Yeah. We've actually heard a lot of times that family members don't want somebody to know, or should they know? Um, or what are they going to do with that information? And we get into all sorts of bioethical issues, discrimination, concerns about employment law, inclusion and, you know, exclusion. Talk a little bit about some of the challenges that you run into with doing this kind of coaching and discussions. Well, you see, that's where it's important that they have, uh, anybody wants to uh, have some of these tests to go through with that either preconception or they want to know if they have a hereditary cancer syndrome in their family or hereditary neurological or cardiac disease, because you can also have panels of tests now for, for prevention of these kinds of disorders too that can't, where you can't have surveillance and prevention for many disorders. So uh, the, the importance of genetic counseling with specialists, not anybody, because that's what we do in the pre-testing genetic counseling is go through all these, the pros, the cons, the limits of the tests, uh, anything that can happen like lab errors or whatever, 
So it, it's very important that we tell, uh, we discuss this beforehand. So some of the uh, cons, we, we talked about the pros about knowing, but yes, we tell them, okay, so if we do find a, a variant, a mutation, either a carrier or for a disease in your family, well, it has an, a, a, in yourself, it has an impact on your whole family. So think about that and, and your children. Obviously, if you have children, the first thing that comes to mind is guilt about, uh, oh, I have this delirious, this abnormal gene and can pass it on to my children and maybe they already have it and now they're gonna have cancer or they're going to uh, have problems when they wanna reproduce later. So that's all the, the whole impact on the family. Now, the other things they have to think of and something that comes up a lot is uh, insurance. Now that is all, there, there are situations where this is just not an issue, but people think it is. So for carrier testing, it's not an issue. Carrier testing and most, most, most of the time you're a carrier, you have no symptoms. That's why you're doing this test because you don't know, uh, you have no signs of being a carrier. So that has no impact on insurance. However, obviously, testing for um, cancer syndromes. If you have already had cancer, it's not an issue. If it's to know if you have this uh, um, abnormal gene that can cause some a cancer, well then obviously uh, uh, either your family history already gave <laughs> some information to the insurance company or then, you know, you, you, and so now we had this information act, this non-genetic, the non-discrimination genetic act in Canada, which was, uh, went to court, was uh, maintained. And so uh, companies are not supposed to get results of genetic tests or ask for genetic tests. So we're clear from that now, but we discussed these things with the patients so that they know. And and you know, that's what, and it's, it's sad because sometimes some physicians said, oh, don't go there, genetics and testing because there is insurance issues. They shouldn't say that. They should send them to a genetic service and we'll explain. Absolutely. Now, other, the other, um, with the new genomic testing, the other uh, issues are when we find unconclusive results. So I don't know if you heard about these variants <laughs> and, uh, um, these uh, VUSs, uh, this is a joke in French because uh, an SUV in French is a VUS. <laughs> so in genetics, it's not a, uh, <laughs> an SUV. It's now we call them variants. And then we have, before we would look for known mutations, either you had it or you didn't have it. If you didn't have it, there were still you know, possibilities that you can still have the disorder. Now we're screening the whole, the whole gene and we find these variants that we're not sure are associated with the disease. So we have all these databases and bioinformatics to analyze that. So we have to uh, warn the, um, the person that it could be a positive result, a negative result, or um, something unconclusive, and then maybe we'll, you know, uh, we'll be able to say in a couple of years with more data that it could be uh, positive. That means we yeah. can affect. So, 
So that has to be explained because uh, it, it has an impact on the treatment after, or, you know, in the case of cancer, on, on surgery, on surveillance. You don't want them to have a whole lot of surveillance for nothing. You don't want, and it brings up an anxiety. So yeah. that's why we have to explain that well before. And then when we give them results, we go through all this again and explain carefully. We write letters for physicians so they understand too, because they can, we often see that. They look at a report real fast. Oh, there's a variant. Oh, oh, so, uh, so you have it. No, you may not have the disease. Yeah. So just in the last few minutes that we have, Gail, because we just have a few minutes, just a top line view. I'm just curious about your predictions for the future. I think a lot of us have heard about gene editing, um, otherwise called CRISPR. We know that, that a few, a few uh, women actually discovered that. It's a new technique and there's good and bad. You know, on the one hand, it's like, how can you prevent certain diseases and issues from coming up? But then it also asks the ethical and moral question of who is who are we to decide what is good and bad? It also brings up a lot of questions. We heard a lot of the controversy of the Chinese scientists that created a couple of, uh, you know, did some gene editing on some embryos. So the first, you know, you know genomically you know, modified children, humans, what does that mean? Are we gonna create cyborgs in the future? Are parents gonna be able to pick their traits? Are we gonna have the haves and the have nots about who can access this? So just in a few words, what's your prediction about what this future looks like? Well, it's, uh, all that is scary <laughs> because uh, it's scary, but at the same time, if I'm, if I'm talking about Canada, usually we put the right, um, how do you say that in English, libelies, the right regulations, the right uh, um, barriers so that bad things don't happen. So already in Canada, we had uh, we have regulations and laws for reproductive technologies. In Quebec, right away, a committee uh, wrote a, a met and wrote a paper on gene editing. So we 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 say no, we won't be doing gene editing on embryos. And uh, now the United States is another thing. They do have some, but you know, it's more uh, some. I, Research is usually well done ethically, but there are always are some people who try things. And in countries like China, that was really bad for the technology. Uh, but I'm, I'm optimistic in the sense that it, in our country, and I, I don't think it's, it's going to happen in most, most countries, but it, it can happen elsewhere. And um, so it, that's scary. And I, we surveyed parents uh, about this gene editing when that committee was uh, established in Quebec. And you know, most understand, even if they have a, ch a child with a genetic disease and they want gene therapy, and which is nice because there are gene therapies now being on the market even now. Uh, but even if they want gene therapy, they really understand, they understand uh, a lot of, the, most of the majority of respondents understood that you don't play with the genome of an embryo because anything can happen. And then it goes from generation to generation. Yeah. Now, some don't understand that and we would like a child to be, to be you know, disease-free, every child to be disease-free, but most people understand it, so. Yeah. Well, I guess we will, we shall see. This is a very rapidly changing and evolving area. 
Uh, it's very exciting to see people like yourself or anybody who's listening to the show and would like to get in contact with Gail to find out what they're doing um, at the uh, RQMO or any of the work that she's doing with the Genetic Simply website. If you're looking to collaborate, work with, help to develop things, we will leave some of her contact information in the show notes, so please be on the lookout for that. We also encourage you to check out our website at impetusdigital.com. If you enjoyed this conversation, if you're an organization, a pharmaceutical company in the rare diseases area, why not put together an advisory committee, a, a, an advisory board, a group of people working together to help move some of these agenda topics, and there are many of them, forward in collaboration with provincial and federal governments. Issues around access, insurance, issues around how do we get new apps developed? How do we get education? How do we do all of these things that we do? We, we would just discuss today, how are we gonna be managing CRISPR and other sorts of bioethics and all kinds of reams of things. Doing this as a committee working side by side, asynchronously in a virtual collaboration platform so you don't even have to meet in person to be able to get some of this work done. So we'd love to hear from you. So check that uh, check out our website at impetusdigital.com. We'd really appreciate it if you can like and subscribe to our channel. And also feel free to leave us a review on our podcast channel. It helps others to find us. We wanna thank you, Gail, so much for a wonderful, very thought-provoking discussion. And we're wishing all of you a great day ahead. Thank you, Natalie, for great questions and great insight. Thank you for listening to this Healthcare Goes Digital podcast. Impetus Digital are the business-to-business -business virtual engagement experts and provide immersive virtual collaboration and communication solutions for advisory boards, medical education meetings, events, conferences, and projects worldwide, all delivered with our award-winning white glove service. Visit us at impetusdigital.com or book a demo at meetwithimpetus.com to find out more and visit us on our LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube channel to see other inspiring conversations for you to share with your network.